Welcome to the Bayshore Podcast. As listeners each week, whether through iTunes or through the church app, you're part of our church family. We would love for you to share stories of how Bayshore is impacting your life by sending us an email at amen at bayshorecc.org. As always, you can find all kinds of information and content on our website, bayshorecc.org. There's also our church app, which you could download by going to bayshorecc.org slash app. So thanks again for joining us this week, and we hope that today's message is a blessing to you. Well, we want to welcome everybody that's listening on Facebook Live. We have a great Facebook Live community, and some of our uh, regular Bayshore people are away. There are different places, so welcome to, uh, you're welcome, and we're glad that you're joining us at uh, this uh, live service this morning. So we are looking this morning at the great Easter story, and my primary uh, text this morning is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 through 11. One of my very favorite uh, parts of the New Testament where it talks about why Christians believe in the resurrection, while the resurrection of Jesus is uh, kind of a verifiable, believable part of our faith. And so we want to look at that this morning, 1 Corinthians Chapter 15, verses 3 through 11. Here's what it says. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Peter and then to the twelve, and after that He appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James Then to all the apostles, last of all, he appeared also to me as one abnormally born. For I am least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. By the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it was I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed." Uh, last year, at the end of our uh, Easter service at, at our Rehoboth campus, a young man came up to uh, Pastor Joel down there and said to him, you really believe this story? And he was shocked about, you know, uh, it was a young man that had not been raised in church and never heard the story about the resurrection. And he was appalled that Christians could believe such a ridiculous thing. And so this morning, I want to talk to you a little bit about uh, th- this is more than a story. It's more than a story. I remember when I first found uh, my love for literature and enjoyed stories, I was in the fifth grade, and my uh, teacher was Mrs. Wheatley. She was a a plump, heavyset lady, uh, very loving, grandmotherly kind of figure, and she had those little hangy-down parts on her her, her arm, you know, those kind of kind of teachers, and when she would walk right on the chalkboard, those things would kind of dance around. I remember, we just loved Mrs. Wheatley. She was just a great, great woman, and uh, one of the things she did was that every afternoon we had reading time, and she would uh, get us all in a semicircle, there would be about three rows, semicircle, and she would read books to us, and she was a great reader, and I'll never forget when she started reading Charlotte's Web, E.B. White's book, uh, Charlotte Webb, and I remember she would read a chapter or two, and then she'd say, that's all for today, and uh, I couldn't wait for the next day to come, because she was such an incredible reader. She would change the voices, and, and she went through all the characters, Fern the little girl, and Mr. and Mrs. Arable, and Avery, and Homer Zuckerman, and Lurvy, and Wilbur and Charlotte. She did all the, all the characters, and, and the story was riveting to me. 
And if you've uh, read Charlotte's Web, uh, you know, any time in your life, it's, it's such great children's literature, and it's so well written. And I remember that was the beginning of my love for books and loving hearing books that are told in such an incredible way. Now, what's interesting about Charlotte's Web is Charlotte's Web is, is not a real historical thing. It's just a story that's born out of the imagination of E.B. White. And what an imagination, you know, a talking pig and uh, a spider that can spell uh, words in a spider web. What an incredible story. I've watched the movie about 25 times with my grandkids, and it's an incredible, incredible story. As I got to be an adult, I I fell in love with with novels, good novels. You know, John Grisham is my favorite, you know, novelist. I love to read his stories. He's a, a trained lawyer. And he writes a lot of stories about legal things. And uh, I remember the first time I read a John Grisham book. It was on vacation. I was in Rehoboth and went to a little bookstore. I had never read a Grisham book before. And it was a, like a paperback uh, copy of the book, The Firm there. I paid 75 cents for, took it to the beach, and read the Grisham, my first Grisham book. First two pages, pulled into the story. Could not get away from the story. It was so incredible. Next day and a half, I read the whole book, and I was on to read other Grisham books. And uh, Sycamore Row is one of my favorite books that Grisham wrote. Uh, the Client, uh, I read uh, The Pelican Brief, and uh, Rooster Bar was one of my most recent books that I read of Grisham. And I, I looked up this week, uh, how much had, did John Grisham make last year? How many have ever read a John Grisham book? Have you ever read a John Grisham book? Boy, what a great storyteller he is. Last year, John Grisham made $21 million. $21 million. I'm going to start writing. I think that's an incredible, incredible thing. $21 million, that's a lot of money. So, great story. The characters aren't real. The characters, you know, are born out of John Grisham's imagination. He makes these people up, puts the story together. I would love to talk to him about how he does that. How, to, how do you begin with a story? Does he know where the story is going to end when he writes the story? Or is it just kind of, you know, kind of come as he, as, he writes the, as he writes the story? Another story, form of story, of course, is uh, on television. You know, my favorite and Karen's favorite show is This Is Us on NBC. We watch the show. Here's a picture of the characters on the show. Anybody watch This Is Us? It's uh, my favorite show. Uh, it, the writing is amazing. You know, the, the, the writing goes from the present to the past, the future, and bounces back and forth. The characters, you know, uh, Jack and Re- Rebecca Pearson, you know, I don't want to spoil it for you. You know, something happens to Jack, but not to worry. He's in all the episodes still. And, uh, and then, you know, the, this is, uh, you know, Kate and, and Kevin. Kevin's, you know, egomaniac, and Kate is just such a wonderful person. This is her her husband, Toby, and uh, Randall's wife, Beth. And, and uh, Randall was actually, you know, Kate, when the story began, the first episode is, is Kate was pregnant with triplets, and she loses one of the babies uh, in delivery. And uh, Randall just happened that same day to be uh, dropped off at a firehouse step by his father, who was a drug addict. And he's adopted in the family, and the, the dynamics of the family are just so incredible. We love the story. And uh, the last episode, I don't know if you saw uh, the third season, the last episode just a couple weeks ago, was absolutely incredible. Gives hints about what's going to be happening in the future with that family. And uh, Karen, watched, Karen and I watched it three times to try to figure out what's going on. And uh, we read websites and all that. So these are stories, great stories. My question is today is, what is the difference between these stories and the Easter story? 
Is the Easter story just a story, or is it more than a story? You know, I think if, if the Easter story was just a story, it is still a great story. It is an incredible story. I love the story. But I believe that Easter is not a John Grisham novel. I don't believe it's a This Is Us TV show made-up story. I don't believe it's Charlotte's Web. I believe that the Easter story is an authenticated, real story. And I'm interested today to talk to, not to Christians so much that say, hey, I just, the Bible says it and I believe it because I, I love the Bible and all that. But I know a lot of people in our culture, like that boy last year at Easter, who said, how do you believe such a thing? How do you believe such a thing? So I want to I look at that this morning a little bit. First of all, the reason that, that Easter is more than a story, more than a made-up story, is because the people in the story are real historical figures. We know that these people really existed. It wasn't like, you know, uh, somebody made them up and they were in the Bible and the Bible's like a myth and it doesn't really, it doesn't really have any, any validation in the real world. But the Easter characters are real people. For instance, there was a guy in the Easter story named Caiaphas. Caiaphas was the high priest that condemned Jesus to death. We know in all the Gospels, Mark, Matthew, uh, Luke, uh, John, they all mention this guy named Caiaphas. And Caiaphas was the high priest. They got Jesus. He was in the garden. And they, they bring him in and they take him to Caiaphas. And it was Caiaphas, the high priest, that was behind the whole scheme to arrest Jesus. Didn't start with the Romans. The Romans, they, were, they didn't start the whole thing, that, all the stuff that happened on Good Friday. That was, that was started by the religious people. They, were, they didn't know what to do with Jesus. Jesus threatened them. Jesus was a very threatening person to anybody that's just religious. And so we know in the book, Gospel of Matthew that, that Caiaphas was a real person. Matthew 26.3 says this, Then the chief priests and the elders and the people assembled in the palace of the high priest whose name was Caiaphas. Caiaphas. So one of the key characters in the story is a guy named Caiaphas. He had a father by, father-in-law by the name of Annas who was a high priest before him. And he appears in uh, John, but Caiaphas was the guy. He was the guy that said to Jesus, Jesus, are you the son of God? And Jesus said, you will see the son of God, you know, uh, on the right hand of the father. And, and Caiaphas condemned him and called him that he was blasphemous. And so what about Caiaphas? Was he a real person? Well, 1990, 1990, they had a bulldozer. They were over there uh, in, uh, in Jerusalem. They were making a mall and they were working on a parking lot, and they, were, they had the bulldozer, and they, they hid something, and they found a big cave underneath of where they were making the parking lot, and they stopped, and they looked in there, and it was an old, old graveyard, an old graveyard, and they thought the way it looked, it was a first century grave, graveyard, and so they stopped, and they went down there, and there were 12 ossuaries in the uh, graveyard there, uh, and an ossuary, I don't know if you know what an ossuary is, here's a picture of the ossuary we're going to be talking about. Uh, an ossuary, basically what they did in those days, this is a little bit morbid, but in those days if you died, uh, you know, they would, they would put you in a cave and put you on a shelf. And you would decompose. And when you decompose, you know, uh, after about a year, it would be nothing but bones left. They would go get the bones and they would put you in a bone box. So that's what they did. And uh, so there's 12 people, or no, 6 people in this bone box. 
And uh, what's interesting about this bone box, this ossuary, is it's very ornate, which means it's, it's, with, it's from somebody that's, that's a very well-to-do or well-known person in the community. And so when they looked at this, this ossuary, this box, um, they also found a coin, a coin uh, in the graveyard that uh, was dated to 44 AD, which is about 10 years after Jesus was crucified. And inside the bone box, they found six people, and one of the person was, uh, was a 60-year-old man. And on the side of the box was, uh, we turn the box to the side, and there's, uh, there's several places on the box where it has the name Caiaphas, Caiaphas, Joseph Caiaphas. And there's this Greek, or this uh, Jewish historian by the name of Josephus, and he talks about Caiaphas and his name being Joseph as well, and scholars... Almost universally, scholars have come to the conclusion that this box contains the bones of the person who was over the trial of Jesus. And so he was the high priest that Jesus stood in front of. He wasn't a Charlotte's Web personality. He wasn't a made-up John Grisham person, but he was a real person. And so there's this little uh, video I want to show you. Karen and I went a couple years ago to, uh, to Billy Graham's uh, center called The Cove down in Nashville, North Carolina. We heard this speaker, this Frank Turek, who's an expert uh, on, uh, on ancient history of Israel. And he's got something to say about this box before we go to our next point. So let's put the lights down and watch this a minute. One of the most fascinating archaeological discoveries which authenticates a major character in the Bible is the Caiaphas ossuary. This was discovered in 1990 in Jerusalem. What's an ossuary? It's a limestone box that the Jews used from about 20 BC to 70 AD. What would happen if somebody important died? They would inter the body about a year later. They would take the bones out of the grave and put them in this ossuary, this limestone box, and reinter the remains. Well, in 1990, they discovered this very ornate ossuary that on the side of it identified the remains as the remains of Caiaphas. Who is Caiaphas? He was the high priest that sentenced Jesus to die. When Jesus said, I am the Messiah, and you will see the Son of Man coming with great power on the clouds, Caiaphas tore his robe and said, blasphemy, this man must die. The man that sentenced Jesus to die, we not only know he existed, we have his bones. When they discovered this ossuary, they discovered the bones of a 60-year-old man and his family. There's only one Caiaphas known from history, and that's the Caiaphas of the New Testament who sentenced Jesus to die. We not only know he existed, we have his burial box. We have his burial box. I love that. So when we think about the story, the story about Jesus, this story about Jesus and the ramifications and the importance of this story, this story is more than a story. It's not just a made-up story, but it's a story that affected and involved real people. Now, another person that most of you know about, this Caiaphas may have been a peripheral figure to you. Maybe you don't really know much about Caiaphas, but Caiaphas is in the story. It's easy to read about Caiaphas. He's throughout the... There's another guy in the Easter story, though, that occurs 61 times, and that's the guy by the name of Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate was the governor after Caiaphas got done uh, dealing with, with Jesus, and we know that Caiaphas was a historical figure, uh, then he was sent 
Caiaphas didn't have the authority to execute Jesus, and so he sent Caiaphas sent Jesus to Pilate, the governor of Judea, who was governor of Judea from 26 A.D. to 36 A.D. And what's interesting about uh, Pilate is Pilate was this kind of a kind of a you know uh, unpopular figure with the Jews and all that. And so, was Pilate a real person? Or was he a made-up person? For many years, people didn't even know if Pilate was real because we only had one little reference in Roman records of Pilate because what happened to Pilate was after, you know, uh, after Jesus was crucified and all that, about three years later, the Romans got rid of him because he was just, he was just uh, they had some problems with him. And so they basically sent him into exile and they got rid of his name. So we didn't even know, does this Pilate really exist? So back in 1961... They were doing some excavation in a place called Caesarea, which was a beautiful beach town. It was where the Romans lived when they were governing Judea. Uh, I've been to Caesarea. It's on, the, it's on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. They were doing some excavation there, but they were working on an old amphitheater. And they came across this step. There was a, there was, they were taking apart some steps, and they were taking, removing this step from a staircase. And when they turned it over, there was some writing on it. And what they discovered is that on this, this stone was writing that had Pontius Pilate's name that he had dedicated a building to Tiberius, the emperor at that time. And so here's a picture of the famous Pilate stone. And the Pilate stone, I can read the words for you uh, exactly what it says. And it, it, if you line it up with what the Bible says in the New Testament, especially in Matthew 27, here's what it says, to divine Augusti... This Tiberium, Tiberium is a building, to, to divine Augustus, the, the, the emperor, this Tiberium, this building, Pontius Pilate, perfect of Judea, that's the same word for governor, governor of Judea, has dedicated this. So we now know that not only was Caiaphas a real person, but we know that also that Pontius Pilate was a real flesh and blood person whom Jesus stood before. So when you think about this story, this is not just a story. It is more than a story because it shows that this event that you and I love and are worshiping Jesus today, this event is rooted not in our imagination, but it's rooted in history. Now, when you think about... uh, you know, one of the big uh, struggles that people that don't believe in, in Jesus, don't believe in God, don't believe that the New Testament is real, one of the things that they struggle with is they think that the Bible is just the only place that there's evidence for any of this stuff happening. So they think, well, you know, Christians just say, well, the Bible says it, so I believe it. So, but is there any other evidence outside of the Bible that Jesus and his followers were impacted by the resurrection? Now, I don't know, do you remember last Sunday night? How do you remember getting the little warning about the tornado? Did you get the warning about the tornado about 3 o'clock in the morning? You know, I'm like sleeping and my phone starts going off an emergency tornado. I'm thinking, all I could think about was Twister, that movie. Oh, my gosh, this can't be good. But, uh, but I, Karen and I, the other night after uh, we got done eating dinner, we took a ride down Fire, uh, Fire Tower Road, and we looked around Laurel and Seaford at some of those sites that were affected by the tornado. And here's a couple uh, sites that we saw there. And uh, boy, just uh, we don't get many tornadoes in Delaware, and we're grateful for that. And uh, anybody live in Laurel, Seaford? You're from the Laurel, Seaford area, so hope everybody's okay. So there's some pictures of that. And you think about that tornado when it touched down, it left its mark on our community. Uh, and when you think about when Jesus came to the earth, 
Did he leave his mark on history? Did history verify that he was here? Now, one of the reasons that, that this is interesting is because when we, people that follow Jesus and we're Christians, we think about uh, this, we think about Israel this way. We think Israel's the center of the, center of the universe. Israel's such an important place, and, you know, Israel is always in the news, and we think Israel's such a big deal. But in Bible times, Israel was the backwater section of the Roman Empire. It was like, it was like the most undesirable, the peripheral, the marginal part of the Roman Empire. And it wasn't like the center stage of things. It was, like, it was like the backwater area of the Roman Empire. So when you think about, think about it this way. Think about uh, in our community. Think about our region. You know, like cities like New York City uh, or uh, Baltimore uh, or uh, Washington, D.C. or Philadelphia. Those are the big cities. Those are what's in the news. Now, Jesus would not have lived in Philadelphia. He wouldn't have lived in New York. He wouldn't have lived in Washington, D.C. Jesus... Wouldn't, it would be like more like Israel would be more like Salisbury. Salisbury. And Salisbury's wonderful, but Salisbury's not New York City. And so you, he, but the thing is, you know, Israel would be sort of, like, sort of like Salisbury, but Jesus didn't live in Salisbury. He lived in Palville. Anybody here from Palville? Did I just offend anybody? There you go. There you go, Palville. <laughs> Kevin, sorry about that. Anyhow, you know, Palville, that's where he would live. He wouldn't have lived in the mainstream of things. So it would be very surprising if a, if a carpenter that's on the uh, outside of, the, of the, ex, uh, the, the marginalized area of the Roman Empire, it would be very surprising if he shows up in history. Does that make sense to you? Why would this person who the Jews rejected, who the Romans thought was a mystical miracle worker, how, why would he ever show up in history? But yet he does. He shows up in history outside of the Bible. So here's an interesting place he shows up. He shows up uh, by this Jewish historian by the name of Josephus. Now, Josephus, everybody say Josephus. One more time, Josephus. He's a, he's a Jewish historian. He's a Jewish historian. So he lived from 36 to 100 A.D. Now, when, now, I'm not going to give you a lot of dates this morning, but let me give you one date that every Christian should know. Every Christian should know this date, 33 A.D., 33 A.D. What happened in 33 A.D.? 33 A.D. is the year that we believe that Jesus was crucified and he was raised from the dead. So everything, when you think about the history of Jesus, it kind of revolves around 33 A.D., so this guy was born a few years after Jesus had been, uh, had been crucified and died and raised from the dead. And so he was an interesting figure. He, he fought in the Jewish war against the Romans, and then he switched sides, and he fought for the Romans, and he ended up in Rome, and he had a patron that helped him write. He was a really smart guy, and he wrote this stuff about his times. And he has this section about Jesus. And here's what he says about Jesus. And he wrote this book called The Antiquities, which he goes through the ancient history. And he goes through all history, and he comes up to the time of Jesus. And here's what he says. He mentions Jesus um, specifically and specifically what happened to Jesus. So this is not the Bible. This is not the Bible. This is, this is the history of their times. This is the history book. And if you were a Jewish kid in those days going to school, you know, you would learn, uh, you would learn Josephus. That would be your historian that you would learn. Here's what he says. At this time, there was a wise man called Jesus. He names him by name, and his conduct was good, and he was known to be virtuous. 
Many people among the Jews and the other nations became his disciples. Pilate condemned him to be crucified and to die. But those who had become his disciples did not abandon his discipleship. They reported that he had appeared to them three days after his crucifixion and that he was alive. Accordingly, he was perhaps the Messiah concerning whom the prophets have reported wonders. And the tribe of Christians, so named after him, has not disappeared to this day. Interesting. Interesting. This guy's not a Christian. He's not a Bible writer. He's a guy that's writing history. And he says this man, he says he was, he was crucified and he was reported to be raised from the dead. And he said his disciples haven't gone away. They're still, they're still here. They're still here when he writes this. He also mentions something else real quickly about uh, that's interesting. Josephus, this historian, not a writer of the Bible, but a person who is writing history. He mentions the brother of Jesus. Uh, the brother of Jesus by the name of James wrote a book in the New Testament. And how many could guess what book in the New Testament James wrote? Does anybody know, have a good guess? It's the book James. Okay. It's the book James. How many knew that? Say, I knew that. I knew that. The brother of Jesus. And, and people, somebody asked me one day, this is a very good question. They said, well, uh, you know, Jesus had brothers? Well, yes, after Mary and Joseph, you know, they were betrothed and Mary had Jesus. Uh, Jesus was overshadowed by, the, or Mary was overshadowed by the Holy Spirit and was supernaturally born. But after Jesus was born, Mary and Joseph had other children and they had uh, a kid named Jude. Uh, they had some sisters and they also had a son by the name of James. And James became a follower of Jesus, although the book of John says then John chapter 7, that his brothers didn't believe in him during his lifetime. They thought he was nuts. They thought he was crazy. And after the resurrection, James, the brother of Jesus, who wrote a book in the New Testament, became a believer in Jesus. And let me ask you this question. What would your brother have to do to get you to convince, convince you that he was the Son of God? It'd take a lot, wouldn't it? And here's what Josephus says about James. Not only does Josephus mention Jesus, Josephus mentions James, the brother of Jesus. And here's, he's talking about a high priest that, that condemned James. And it says he convened a judicial session of the Sanhedrin and brought before it the brother of Jesus, the one called Christ, James by name, and some others whom he charged with breaking the law and handed over to be stoned to death. So the brother of Jesus was stoned to death by the Jewish authorities because he became a believer in Jesus. Now, this is not in the Bible. You can't find this in the Bible. This is in history outside the Bible. So let's, let's talk about real quickly about a couple other things that I think are interesting. Another thing that's real interesting is outside of, of uh, archaeological evidence and all that, we have this, we have Roman, Roman historians. Josephus is a Jewish historian. We have Roman historians that are writing Roman history about what's happening in the Roman Empire, and they mention Jesus as well. So Jesus made a big splash on the planet. Say that with me. Jesus made a big splash on the planet. Not just the Bible tells us this. This is, this is the context of the historical, Greco historical record of those times. Here's a guy named Pliny the Younger. Uh, Pliny the Younger of course, was the son of Pliny, was the nephew of Pliny the, young, the older. So uh, Pliny the Younger, he was a governor of the Roman Empire in what's now modern-day Turkey. So he's a Roman governor, 
And uh, around 112 AD, he's serving under Emperor Trajan, uh, one of the Roman emperors. And he's got all these Christians. All these Christians are in the Rome, are, are in Turkey, modern-day Turkey. By the way, the people that come here regulate church, we've been studying the book of Acts, and where Paul was planting all those churches, 70 years later, that whole area is full of Christians. And so Pliny the Younger is the governor. He's trying to figure out what to do with these Christians. What are we supposed to do with these Christians? This is history. This isn't, this isn't Bible. This is the history of the times. And here's what Pliny the Younger, he writes a letter to Trajan. He always wrote letters to the, uh, to the emperor to find out what to do. And here's what he wrote about what to do with these Christians. He, he, he was trying to describe what these Christians do. And here's what he says, uh, Pliny the Younger says about these Christians, is they were in the habit of meeting on a certain fixed day before it was light, when they sang a alternate verses, a hymn to Christ as to a God. And bound themselves by a solemn oath not to do any wicked deed, but never to commit any fraud, theft, or adultery, never to falsify their word, nor to deny a trust when they should be called upon to deliver it up. After which it was their custom to separate and then to reassemble to partake of food, but food of an ordinary and innocent kind. So he said on a, the Christians met on a certain fixed day. Uh, okay, certain fixed day. What do you think that means? A certain fixed day is, of course, Sunday. It was a fixed day. Christians, why, do we, why are we meeting on Sunday? Why are we not meeting on Monday, Tuesday? Why aren't we meeting on Saturday like the Jewish people? We're meeting on a certain fixed day because this is the day, historically, that Jesus is raised from the dead. So throughout history, way back to 112 A.D., 70 years after the, all this happened, Christians are gathered together and they're meeting together uh, early in the morning uh, on a fixed day, and, and, and that fixed day is Sunday. That fixed day is Sunday. Why were they meeting early in the morning? If you ask somebody in the Roman Empire, if you said, hey, what are you going to do this weekend? They wouldn't know what you meant because they didn't have weekends. Sunday was a work day. Sunday was a work day. So the Christians, get a picture of this. These Christians, they got up early before it was, it says in the text, in this historical record, even before it was light, they got up early before work and they met together and they sang worship songs to Jesus as a God. They believed Jesus was the Son of God. And then they made a commitment to live with integrity today, not to commit adultery, not to steal, to be honest and all that. And then they would reassemble at night after work. And they would have church together, they would have, they would have a love feast, and they would have communion. And this is the record of what the early Christians were. So the early Christians, the record of Jesus' impact on all these people is showing up in history. And there's all these different things. There's a guy named Tacitus, uh, Roman Empire guy that wrote about the great fire in uh, Rome in AD 64. This guy that was an uh, egomaniac guy named Nero who was the, was the emperor. And uh, he was, uh, you know, he, blamed, he, he started, perhaps started the fire in Rome and he tried to blame it on the Christians. And, and then he, then let me just read you one little thing from Tacitus. Tacitus is another, this is a Roman historian. Everybody say Roman historian. One more time, Roman historian. Not the Bible, Roman historian. This is Jesus on the backwater, Calville, part of the empire. All of a sudden, he's showing up. And, and here's, this is about what's happening in Rome. Listen, this is, he's writing about the great fire in 64 AD. Listen to this. Don't want to miss this. Less about 30 years after Jesus was raised from the dead. The backwater movement of Jesus being on the outside of the Roman Empire, the capital city of the empire, Rome, is filled with Christians. 
It's filled with Christians. Something amazing has happened. The Holy Spirit has done something really incredible and something really amazing. So here's, let me read you this last quote here this morning. And there's more, but this is all we can all endure today. Tacitus uh, wrote, Therefore, to squelch the rumor, Nero created scapegoats and subjected them to the most refined tortures, those whom the common people called Christians. The common people called them Christians. They were Christ-like, hated their abominable crimes. Their name comes from Christ, who during the reign of Tiberius had been executed, executed by the procurator Pontius Pilate, suppressed for the moment. The deadly superstition broke out again, not only in Judea, the land that, which originated this evil, but also in the city of Rome, where all sorts of horrendous and shameful practices from every part of the world converge and are fervently cultivated. So this, this Roman historian said, these Christians who were hated by the Romans, uh, it's interesting, there's a guy named Suetonius later on that writes about the cr- conflict between the Jews and Christians in Rome. It's interesting. So the point is, this is not a made-up story. This is not a made-up story. This is more than a story. Because this is a story that's rooted in history. It's a story that's rooted in real actual events. And when we read about uh, 1 Corinthians 15, which is uh, what we started with today, 1 Corinthians 15 says this, 1 Corinthians 15 says, Paul said, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. So Paul said, hey, listen, he's writing to the Corinthians about the resurrection of Jesus, and he's saying, what I received, I passed on to you. Now, we know that Paul had an experience. He, he, in the book of Acts, three times he talks about his testimony where he saw Jesus raised from the dead, that Jesus knocked him off his horse on the road to Damascus, and he met the Lord, he met the risen Christ, and we believe that that happened sometimes about between one and three years after Jesus raised from the dead, that Paul was converted. And here is the question. Here is the question we all must ask ourselves about, is this real? Of all the things that I could say about history, this one thing in my mind stands out above everything else. And that is, what made a man that hated Christianity, that hated Christians, that dedicated his life to destroy Christians, what made Paul do a U-turn and what made him become the greatest preacher of the gospel? What made Paul change his mind? There's something that happened to Paul on the road to Damascus. And he said, uh, I, 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 was, I, was, I was encountered by the Lord, and I, w- I heard the voice. And Jesus said, what did Jesus say to Paul? Jesus said, Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? And so Paul had this amazing, he did a U-turn. And that, to me, is one of the most incredible proofs. It says in this text that he appeared to Peter. He appeared to more than, listen to this, he appeared to more than 500 other brothers at the same time. He appeared to 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living. Most of whom are still living. Why is that there? It means that Jesus didn't appear to just one man. Was it one disillusional, schizophrenic guy that thought Jesus was alive, that he was seeing voices? He appeared to Peter. He appeared to all the apostles. He appeared... He appeared, to, uh, he appeared to James, the brother of Jesus. He appeared to 500 people at one time. And then Paul throws this little comment in. Most of whom are still living. 
most of whom are still living. Why would he put that in there? Basically, he's saying, listen, if you want to check this out, these people are still walking around that saw Jesus alive. So when you think about the story of Jesus being raised from the dead, that young man that came up last Sunday, last Easter at Rehoboth campus and said, hey, how can you believe this? I tell you what, I've never been to North Dakota. Anybody here ever been to North Dakota? I've never been to North Dakota. But I'm questioning for a moment the existence of North Dakota. I have no desire to go there, but I don't, I don't because I know people that have been there. And they've experienced that. I, I was not there. I was not there when Columbus, you know, landed at San Salvador. I wasn't there in 1492. I wasn't there. But you know what? I believe with all my heart that Columbus came to the New World in 1492 and sailed the ocean blue. I believe that. Why do I believe that? Because throughout history, people verified that that was an actual event. And you can see the ripple effects of that event. If I ask you today, I ask you today, what color are swans? And here's the problem we don't believe. We, the problem, the reason people struggle to believe in the resurrection is because it's out of their frame of experience. We've never gone to a funeral where somebody got up and said, hey, I'm out of here, leave, leave the coffin. We've never done that. Never seen that. If that ever happens to me, I am like going to be running. We've never seen that. So it's not in our frame of reference. And so we have a tendency to gauge, to gauge reality from our experience alone. And let me just tell you something. Your experience does not encompass all the realities that there are. There are realities that are true that you've never experienced. So if I said to you, what color are swans? Most people would say, well, swans are white. All swans are white. They're all white. Because I've only ever seen white swans. I have never, I've never seen a swan that wasn't white. All swans are white. I've been to Salisbury Zoo. Swans are white. Swans are white. But you know what? There are black swans. And I didn't know that until, you know, I was studying in college. You know, it's science. You gotta, you know, do you know that there are black swans? And I didn't know that because my experience did not verify that truth. And so here's a picture of a black swan. There's a black swan. And you know where they are? Australia. Anybody ever been to Australia? Okay, but we're, none of us have enough money to go to Australia. I understand that. <laughs> but they're in Australia. My experience doesn't always encompass all the realities that there are. But Peter, he saw Jesus raised from the dead. And he was willing to die for that. Thomas, who's my favorite disciple, he said, I don't buy it. He wasn't there the first resurrection day on Easter Sunday. He was out, you know, doing something. He was at, you know, he was at McDonald's or something. He wasn't there. And he got back, you know, with his Big Mac and his fries, and he gets back into the room, and he, and he says, you know, hey, what's going on? They said, you just missed it. Jesus was just here. And they said, yeah, yeah, right. That's what he said. Yeah, right. He said, I won't believe it unless I put my hand, my fingers in his nail-printed hand and put my finger in his wound in his side. Next week, he, Jesus appeared again in the Bible. By the way, Acts says that Jesus appeared over a period of 40 days to the disciples, giving many convincing proofs that he was alive. And Thomas was there that next week and 
Big yellow spot on his robe. I mean, it just scared him to death. Sorry about that. I just happened to say that. And you, what did Thomas say? The doubter. He said, my Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. Thomas went to India as a missionary. And Thomas is martyred for his faith. We got, we got Peter... We got James, the brother of Jesus, who said, you know, he didn't believe in his own brother being the son of God. And Jesus, it says in this text in 1 Corinthians 15, that Jesus appeared to James, his brother. And James gave his life for his elder brother. Because it's true. This is, this is more than a story. And if it's more than a story, the ramifications are huge. It doesn't mean that you ought to start coming to church some. What it means is, is you need to surrender your entire life to follow Jesus every single day of, the, of your life. Because Jesus is raised from the dead. And if he's raised from the dead, everything is different. And we have something to live for beyond just going to work and paying our bills and getting our kids through college. And then paying their college bills off for the rest of our life and then going to retirement. Life is more than that because he's raised from the dead. And we should love Jesus with all of our heart, come to church, serve him, love him, and make him an integral part of our life. So I'm a kind of a, I'm kind of a you know, uh, analytical kind of guy. This history stuff means a lot to me. I read this, I say, wow, that's pretty interesting. That's interesting. That's interesting. I love to have conversations with People like that young guy that came up and said, hey, how do you believe this? Oh, man, I got so many ways I believe this. But you know the most important way that we know that Jesus has been raised from the dead? It's lives that have been, have been changed. And I didn't ask Hunter, but Hunter's sitting over here. Hunter Phillips, Hunter, is, uh, Hunter gave his testimony to our church a while back. He leads our James Club ministry. Hunter was uh, addicted to heroin. $400 a day he was spending on his habit. His wife, Tracy, was going to leave him. His life was falling apart. And a guy that he went to deliver some grain to gave him a Gideon Bible. And long story short, Hunter became a Christian, became a follower of Jesus. And every single Sunday, Hunter Phillips is sitting right there with his wife, Tracy, loving Jesus. We had our chapel service this morning, 730 chapel service. And, and Hunter, this week, had steam cleaned all the chairs for the chapel service. And Hunter is there. And you look at this guy. Hunter, do you mind standing up? I don't mean to. This is Hunter Phillips. Look, give Hunter a hand for what the Lord's done in his life. You say, you say, give me a, give me the, give me the cliff notes, give me the resurrection for dummies proof. There it is. That man's changed. And I believe that when Paul realized that he's, he remembered seeing Stephen, that Stephen was one of the the first martyr in the faith, and he, you know, was a part of that, and. Paul's conscience before he went to Damascus was bothering him. And, and Jesus said to Paul, it says in Acts chapter 26, it's hard for you to kick against the goad or something was bothering him. He knew it was real. He knew it was real. And he finally surrendered when he saw the resurrection of Jesus. And I want to show you, we're going to bring the lights down. I want to, I want to show you some stories. And we're going to end our service today by surrendering with this white flag to the resurrection of Jesus. 
But I want to show you some stories of people in our church in Bayshore that their lives have been changed because Jesus is real. Let's just bring the lights down. Let's watch these this morning. Hey, my name is Jeff, and I was a non-believer. Um, rock bottom for me was a jail cell. Hi, my name is Renata Italian, and I was a prisoner to eating disorders and mental illnesses. Hi, my name is Sean, and I was an atheist addicted to drugs and alcohol who struggled with severe anxiety and depression. I was arrested for my second DWI in five years. I started to abuse alcohol in my late teens, and a transformation would happen. I would turn into an unsufferable intellectual, and I felt that I had to tell the truths of the universe to anyone who would listen. I spent all of my teenage years living in a world consumed by anorexia, bulimia, anxiety, depression, and suicidal thoughts and attempts. I spent two years of high school in hospitals, treatment centers, therapy, and my deathbed more times than I can count. At my lowest weight, I was 87 pounds. I was sitting by myself in a room in a detox facility debating on committing suicide. I was withdrawing from an addiction to prescription drugs and alcohol. Five minutes earlier, my wife had just told me she was kicking me out of the house and that I could no longer spend time with my daughter unsupervised. I didn't have much of a religious upbringing, but I did have books, and my understanding was that if you worked hard enough for it, you could learn a comprehensive explanation of the universe through like science and logic, um, not with belief. Uh, all of these factors combined and led me to that rock bottom. I thought my life would be like this forever. I thought the world was awful and I had nothing to believe in. I was more at peace with the thought of death than the thought of waking up another day. I had no money, no home, no family to go home to, and I had completely lost my belief that God was real. I had an out-of-body experience when I was in the jail cell. I, I felt like I was pulled up to the top of the cell and I could see myself there, and I was told as a quote, this is where you got you. And I was walking back to my apartment from, from jail and I remember stopping about a mile from home and I dropped to my knees and asked God to help me. And from that point until now, Jesus has transformed my life in ways that I could have never imagined. Uh, by letting go and giving God control, I found victory. One night while I was lying in bed, I thought, how am I still here? Why am I still alive? In that moment, a chill ran through my whole body, and the next thought in my head was God. I didn't come from a religious background, and I didn't know Jesus at all. I was confused and unsure as to why God was running through my head. But from that moment on, I knew why I didn't die and why I'm still here. God had a bigger plan for me than I could ever have for myself. For the first time in my life, I didn't feel alone. Now, I help other people who are fighting anorexia and bulimia with my story.
I went to an NA meeting my last day in rehab. I learned about the importance of having a higher power in recovery, so I reached out to the only one that I had ever known. I told God I had lost the ability to make my own decisions. I committed my life to seeking His wisdom and guidance in every area going forward, and that no matter what, I would trust Him and accept whatever outcome happened. You don't have to be perfect, you just have to grab that white flag and surrender. My name is Jeff, and Jesus gave me victory over my non-belief. You don't have to be perfect. You just have to grab that white flag and surrender. My name is Renata Letalian, and Jesus gave me victory over my battle with mental illnesses, and I will never be a prisoner to them again with Jesus holding my hand. You don't have to be perfect. You just have to grab that white flag and surrender. My name is Sean, and Jesus gave me victory over atheism and addiction to drugs and alcohol. can't tell you how much I love watching that because that is the story of the resurrection and that is why we know that Jesus is real. It's not just simply history. It's not just simply apostles that have given witness to his resurrection, but it's people of any, every generation whose lives were hopeless and they found hope in Jesus. And Jesus literally changed their future and changed how they lived. My mom and dad... Uh, Back in 1969, when I was 12 years old, put their faith in Jesus. And shortly thereafter that, our whole family became followers of Jesus. And it's literally defined my life and changed my life. Because Jesus is not just a story. He's more than a story. Jesus is the story that can change our future. And if you are a follower of Jesus today, I want to invite you to take up your white flag. And I want you to lift it high and say, Lord, I surrender my life to you. I surrender my life to you because you're, you are real and you have been raised from the dead. That we don't live in a world just governed by fate and hopelessness. That we are a people that are under the lordship of Jesus who has a kingdom that will not be shaken and will never end. So just lift your flag and just say this, Lord Jesus, you are Lord of my life. You deserve my life. I have something to live for because of your resurrection. I love you, Jesus, and I worship you. If you're here this morning, you're not a Christ follower, just pick up that flag. We're not going to call you to come forward. We're not going to embarrass you. We just want you to lift the flag to the one who loves you. You've been trying to run your own life. Like Dr. Phil says so often, how's that working for you? It's not working for any of us when we try to run our own life. But just lift that flag and say, Jesus, I belong to you. I surrender to you, Jesus. I surrender my life to you. Just lift your hands to the Lord. The Holy Spirit is moving right now. The Spirit of God, the power of the resurrection is not, is not confined to AD 33. The power of the resurrection is in every age. The Holy Spirit moving, touching people, changing people, liberating people. There is hope in a world that seems to be without hope. There's hope in a world of violence. There's hope in a world of, of conflict. There's hope in a world. There's peace in a world that only Jesus can give. He's the Prince of Peace. He's the Prince of Peace, and He's the Lord of Lords. And He has come to change us because of His resurrection.